Hey, y'all. Something that's worth noting in regard to today's episode is that every person you'll hear from, with the exception of myself, was wearing a cowboy hat at the time of recording. Now, despite the fact my roots in Texas can be traced back some six generations, I'll confess to never having owned one. I mean, call me old-fashioned, but I think a cowboy hat is a garment that should be earned, and for that, have caught myself occasionally rolling eyes at Austin and Brooklyn hipsters. But not once did I feel that impulse when visiting the Fort Worth Stockyards. If you've never been, the Stockyards isn't just the site of a long-closed cattle market. It's a 98-acre historic district where Western identity is embraced without the slightest hint of a wink. By some estimates, it might be the most visited site in Texas after the Alamo and Riverwalk, but you won't find a hard rock or rainforest cafe like you might in San Antonio. Here, rodeos are hosted each and every weekend, while crowds clamor for the fajitas at Joe T. Garcia's before hitting the dance floor at Billy Bob's. But more than Party Central, it's the only place I've been where you can see longhorn steers marched through the streets. And today, take pleasure in introducing you to a few of the good people who are making the Stockyards history a tangible experience through stories, music, and honest-to-goodness work. I'm Evan Stern, and this is Vanishing Postcards. Before we get started, it deserves mentioning that a number of podcasts played a significant role in providing me with the inspiration to develop Vanishing Postcards. One of them is a grassroots storytelling program from Baltimore called Out of the Blocks, each episode, the producers visit one city block, and they make it their mission to meet and interview everyone on that entire block about life. It's a fascinating, immersive collage of stories and soundscapes set to an original music score. And whether talking to barbers or sidewalk performers, the subjects captured all exhibit measures of individual grace, and it's been one of my favorite shows for years. It's really special, so do yourself a favor and find Out of the Blocks wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's get on with the show. Howdy, everybody! There you go. Hey, how many folks are here from somewhere other than Fort Worth? Raise your hand for me. Looky there. It's nearing 11.30 a.m., and Ed Brown a portly, jovial 70-something stands on the paved brick of Fort Worth Exchange Avenue. He's brandishing a megaphone while wearing a Texas flag button-down and straw ridge-topped hat. Crowds have gathered on both sides of the sidewalk in view of the grand 1902 Hacienda-style building for which this thoroughfare was named. Excitement hangs in the air, and after a construction truck passes, vested security guards close off the streets to traffic. But this isn't a holiday, and we're not waiting on any parade floats or marching bands. In fact, this is just your run-of-the-mill Monday. Nevertheless, Ed makes sure we know that we're about to witness something special. Not again in a few minutes, you're going to see the world-famous Fort Worth Cattle Drive. Fort Worth, Texas is the only city in the world that does this twice a day at 11.30 a.m. and 4 p.m. That's right. In Fort Worth, barring lightning, 
every day with the exception of Christmas, Thanksgiving, and maybe one or two other dates of importance. A team of drovers guide a herd of longhorn steers through the heart of this city's stockyards. And we're the only city in the world that employs its own drovers. Some people call them cowboys. We're the only city in the world that has its own longhorn herd, and we're the only city in the world that has its own registered brand. When announcing the herd, George always makes a point to state that this isn't something the city does for pure spectacle. This tradition began in 1999 as part of Fort Worth's sesquicentennial, and chatting with me on a bench in what had been the old hog and sheep markets, he says this display is intended as an homage to the cattle drives that shaped this town as a western gateway. Well, after the Civil War, when the folks came back from Texas, there was less than 20 families living here. Our economy was devastated. There was no jobs. The only thing we had of value was cattle. And boy, did we have cattle in Texas. We had several hundred around here. But when we went down around Houston and San Antonio, there was over... 12 and a half million head of cattle walking around for free. All you had to do is rope them, brand them, they became yours. Now the trouble was, there was too many of them. If you butchered one out, you might get one to four dollars. Most people didn't have that. But see, up north, it was completely different. But they didn't have any beef. They told the Texans that they could walk a cow 800 miles up to the nearest railhead, which happened to be Abilene, Kansas, they would give the cowboys 40 to $50 a piece. Now, they didn't think that could be done, but we knew we could do it. You know, you never tell a Texan that they can't do something, especially when there's money involved. Well, they would travel 800 miles. It'd take them about three months. But see, after six weeks, they were, the cattle were about worn out. They need a place to stay. It had to be the halfway point. Had to be a valley with lots of grass and water in it. And that's where we're located today. See, from 1866 to 1890, four and a half million had a cattle around it up, brought up the Chisholm Trail right through the middle of the streets of Fort Worth. And as people would look from the old fort location, they saw nothing but a sea of cattle. And then Fort Worth became known forevermore as Cowtown. Today, Fort Worth is a prosperous, vibrant city. It boasts Texas's oldest opera, a symphony, exquisite botanic garden, and cultural district whose Kimball Museum claims Michelangelo's first known painting. Yet despite these offerings, people still call this place Cowtown, which is a title its citizens seem to have come around to embrace it. The, the moniker uh, Cowtown was something that the city council foolishly tried to throw off back in the 1970s. They were trying to shed the image of Cowtown, but we saw the better, we saw the error of our ways. But for a while, before that, they had a, it's, it's downtown, not Cowtown. Yeah, well see, we were trying to be Dallas. Fort Worth has less population, but a whole lot more charm. Sorry, Dallas. We have t-shirts. We say on these t-shirts, it says, don't Dallas my Fort Worth. <laughs> and I guess, how can you, what are the differences between uh, Dallas people and Fort Worth people? Well, of course, they're all Texans, and we love to argue with one another. But anyway, it, it was pretty much banking and oil and not so much cattle. So we, we were uh, upstream on the Trinity, and uh, we, during a drought in the 1950s, 
we actually had a staying in Fort Worth. It was a horrible drought in the 1950s. We had signs all over Fort Worth that said, flush twice, Dallas needs the water. Everyone in Texas loves each other, okay? But um, remember, um, Texas is where the West begins. So a lot of times we say, well, Dallas is where the East peters out, okay? In Fort Worth, there's no mistaking that you're in the West. This is especially noticeable in the stockyards where neon signs advertise steakhouses that serve massive ribeyes and rainbow trout to hungry revelers. To be fair, it's been a long time since livestock barons brokered deals at the exchange, and while thousands of cattle pass through here on 100-mile journeys, today's herd only numbers 22, and the distance they travel isn't even three blocks. But that doesn't stop Ed from getting the crowd hyped up. I want to welcome you to Fort Worth. I want to welcome you to the stockyards. But most of all, welcome to the cattle drive! Within moments, the drovers exit the pens on horses. But as these gentle, four-legged giants come lumbering down the street, a hush instinctively settles over the crowd. But as they come down the road, I said, you've got to be there to see it. I never get tired of it, and I mean that. There's just a certain chill where you see these magnificent longhorns. And as they come down the road, I tell people, you're going to see 18 to 19 of them. But that represents, each one of them represents 100. So try to imagine the normal cattle drive was 8 to 1900 led by 10 cowboys or cowgirls. You're going to see these drovers in their period correct attire the way it really looked. But you really get the feeling. You hear them talking to the cattle. You see the cattle walking just the way they did in the old days. The longhorns don't change. So it's just the way it was. And nowhere else you're going to find that. So again, I dare you to watch it, not just have that little goosebump come up and say, wow, this is real. Watching the herd is indeed a transporting experience. The procession itself is simple and doesn't take more than two minutes, but it's touching in its symbolism. Like Ed suggests, as I hear the clop of hooves against brick and see the drovers orchestrating formation, can't help but feel the ghosts of history. But more than the wealth and commerce these animals generated, I think of the lifestyles, fashions, and art they inspired, which continues to permeate the stockyards to this day. Well, every day along about I time my trip so I could be in town on a Sunday when the Cowtown Opry gathers at 2 p.m. on the steps of the Exchange Building to freely perform for any who care to stop by. A group dedicated to the performance, preservation, and promotion of Western music, I sat down with the organization's artistic director, Devin Dawson. Toting a painted guitar, French purse, red bandana, jade earrings, and hat, she looks like she could have stepped off the set of a Dale Evans picture. 
But this isn't a performance costume. It's who she is. And I wear my boots and hat. I, I've been to France and I've worn them there. I've been to downtown London. I've worn them there. I got a lot of attention from the people on the street in downtown London. When I was in France, I was on a country road in central France near Saint-Agreve in the Ardèche. This car went by and they rolled the windows down and they said, Texas! Devon has been blessed to make a profession out of Western music, which she stresses probably shouldn't be hyphenated with country. So I ask her to explain the difference. If you ask Roy Rogers that, Roy Rogers, would, the king of the cowboys, he, he was asked that. And he said, well, in country music, they're singing about their neighbor's wife. And in Western music, they're singing about their neighbor's horse. <laughs> well, Western music uh, does deal with love of the land, adventure, history, um, romance. Romance of the land and romance with each other. So they do tug at the heartstrings. Um, then when movies started to be made, they romanticized the, the hard life. And a lot of those songs I just mentioned came out of cowboy and Western um, movies. But while Hollywood proved crucial in popularizing Western music, Devon says that as Cowtown was a crossroads of culture and business, it was in these streets that much of it was shaped. So as it evolved, when you have a lot of people and a lot of money, you want entertainment. So all the up and down Exchange Avenue, you know, the turn of the century, you had body houses, you had everything that wild young men would want. And downtown Fort Worth had it, they called it Hell's Half Acre down there. But they also had a lot of honky-tonks, and, and then during Prohibition they had speakeasies. Well, all this is a place where musicians can get paid to play. So this band type of music, hot string band music, it was a, about five different cultures shaking hands in Texas, and especially in Fort Worth, started borrowing each other's styles, and it became what we now know as Western Swing, which is the official music of Texas. Uh, the, the Western Swing music that developed in Fort Worth and north of here was a dance type of music. It was happy. People needed, in the Depression especially, people didn't have much money, so for like 25 cents, a couple could go out and see Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys at a dance, and they could, uh, their hearts would be lifted, and it was just, we need to give relief to each other when times are hard, you know? And we've had a little bit of a hard time, not as bad as the Depression, but this last six months has been a challenge, and people's spirits need to be lifted, and the music does that. She was introduced to the records of Bob Wills and Sons of the Pioneers through her father, who was a musician himself. He actually, born in 1918, when he was uh, about 17 years old, he actually was alone in the world by that time. He strapped a guitar on his back, he rode hobo, the rails out to get to California and pick oranges and he was in like the Visalia area and he found he could make a whole lot more money and work a lot less hard if he just played his guitar instead of picking oranges. He didn't tolerate rock in the house so I didn't have any of that influence and in high school I had nothing in common with my my friends. I, I didn't I wouldn't listen to Aerosmith or you know what Jefferson Airplane or whatever you know. Since those early days of listening to vinyl She's performed at the Grand Old Opry and is known today as one of the best yodelers in the business. So much so, she even provided the singing voice of Toy Story's Jesse on the Grammy-winning album Woody's Roundup. But this isn't a skill her father got around to teaching and is something she didn't even attempt until age 40. People around, a few people around me were yodelers and I thought, oh, I always wanted to do that since I was 10 years old. My dad could yodel, you know, like... He could do that. And I was going, you know, I want to do that. I just knew that I knew that I knew that I wanted to learn yodeling. I thought, 
I thought it would be fun and, and kind of a fulfilling of a, a thing, I, a dream I'd had. It's kind of a cowgirl attitude. I can do this, you know. So I started yodeling in the car, and I'd have the, uh, when I was alone on, in my vehicle on the freeway with the windows rolled up, I'd put on a Roy Rogers recording and try to yodel along with Roy because you gotta copy the best, you know. And uh, I, I'd sound horrible, and that's why you don't wanna be around other people, because it's gonna be very discouraging. So you can't let it out, really blast and get better until you, you do it alone, you know. So, <laughs> so I was uh, trying, and, and, and sometimes I couldn't quite get it, and then I, it's like the Lord gave me this scripture, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. So I taped that up on my dashboard of the vehicle. And next time I went out, I was looking at that scripture and I'd set myself and take a breath and I could do it. Just then, Devin's musical collaborator, Jesse Robertson, passes by. And having learned of my love for Johnny Mercer, they launch into a song from his obscure show, Texas Little Darling. And I'm treated to a private concert. One, two, three, four, one, two, three. Way up in New York City, they talk a different style. So busy making money, man, they ain't got time to smile. It got so doggone crowded, held so hemmed in there. I came back home to Texas to get a breath of air. Jesse strikes me as the kind of guy people call a teddy bear. He's tall and vast with a winning smile and jokester attitude. Yet having wrestled with cancer, depression, and the loss of many loved ones, he's open about the struggles he's faced. This music, he tells me, played a role in saving his life, and sharing its joy with others has become something of a personal ministry. The main reason that I do the music, and I've said this many times on stage, is because if I can get those people listening to me and watching me and having fun with me for that time that I'm there, then they forget about all their troubles and cares and their problems. Devin fully agrees and argues that it's important to keep Western music alive as it provides the young with a gateway to our heritage. The main demographic right now is the people who remember their grandparents and their parents being out on the land. Kids who are city-bound, they never even They've never even experienced what it's like to be, to live where there's not constant roar of traffic and smog where you can't see the stars at night. So at least the, the music gives them the window to that and maybe it will draw the heart to where maybe they would like to go live that way too. It's important that we not lose our agricultural roots. So busy making money, ain't got time to smile. Listen to me, you rovers, when everything's bad news. Just come back home to Texas, sing the old lady blues. Oh, the old lady, old lady got the blues. Old lady, old lady, just for you. Old lady, old lady, and the sweet still home ever do. Oh, the old lady, old lady, when I'm low. Old lady, old lady, don't you know?
take a quick break to say that if you've been enjoying Vanishing Postcards, then Gravy is definitely another podcast you need to be listening to. A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells stories about the changing American South. Reporters dig into lesser-known corners of the region and talk to the folks who grow, cook, and serve our daily meals. Hear stories of Indian sweets in North Carolina and Cuban sandwich controversies. Follow pastrami and pasteles from Providence to plates around the South and the world, or get to know some of the inspiring figures working to introduce Indonesian food to Houston. Produced in fantastic documentary style, Gravy introduces its audience to Southerners who are reinventing the region for a more delicious future, and I recommend you give it a listen by finding Gravy wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's get back to the show. Unlike the city kids Devin aims to reach through music, Tyler Peterson grew up far from the hustle and bustle on a ranch outside of Marble Falls, and has been riding and working with animals for about as long as he can remember. This is a joy he's honored to promote as one of the herd's drovers. People come up and talk to me before who've never seen a horse in person, and I've had lady people cry before because they think that horses are such beautiful animals and they've never had the opportunity to experience being this close to one and being able to touch one. And so I truly appreciate what the herd has done for the community to bring this to the city of Fort Worth and so that people who may not have the opportunity to be around horses every day or cattle every day have the, have the chance to bring their kids out. Every time you see a kid's face light up, it makes your day a little bit better. Modest and humble, Tyler carries himself with a stoic maturity that belies his youth and looks every bit the natural in a dusty black hat, period vest, and full beard. He's been working with the herd now for a year and a half, and despite his calm, readily admits to his excitement when he learned he'd been accepted to join this team. I was, I was pretty overjoyed. I was, I was excited and ready, but at the same time I was nervous because I knew that this was going to be a completely different game than pretty much anything else I had ever done. When I first came to work here, I had not worked with longhorn cattle before. I'd worked with other breeds of cattle, but never longhorns. So there was a little sense of a little nervousness about that. Longhorn cattle think a little differently than, say, your Angus cattle or your Hereford cattle. And so they kind of are a little bit smarter almost. They kind of view a situation and judge it and then kind of try to manipulate it into their favor a little bit. And so you kind of have to be aware that they, they're they very aware of where their horns are and they're very aware of where their body positioning is. You kind of have to outthink them a little bit more. So we have 22 longhorn steers in total, um, range, ages ranging from three years old to about 15 years old. And horn, horn lengths of all different lengths. Uh, I think the longest horn length that we have is 106 inches from one tip to, of the horn to another tip of the horn. Like all things in nature, Ed tells me these horns serve a purpose and came about when the harsh environment of the Texas brush country forced Spanish cattle to evolve. But what happened, they started changing. First of all, to protect their babies from coyotes and wolves, they would fight them off with their horns. Well, they got started adapting because of that, and their horns, instead of growing straight up, started growing sideways for better protection. In fact, they adapted to where 
as soon as the cow come up, the adults, male and female, both cattle, would get in a circle and the babies need to get in the middle. Well, as their horns started growing out to the side, it got to where both male and female, by the way, are born with nubs. Their horns grow until the day they die, okay? Now, grant you, it slows down, but they're still growing. Blood is flowing through their horns. As air passed over their horns, it started cooling their blood down. Well, when that happened, they started growing bigger, stronger. They got to adapt to their Texas heat where they could go 10 to 13 miles a day without food or water. And then they got to where they could have babies very easily. And so that's why we started growing and growing in our size of herd. It was because of these horns that the cattle didn't just survive, but thrive. But while they once numbered in the millions as ranching practices evolved, Demand for longhorns weakened as other breeds provided more beef, to the point where they were almost lost for good. In 1927, we, just, we didn't think we needed longhorns anymore. We started killing them out. The government woke up one day and said, we need to save the longhorns. So they looked for some purebred longhorns. Less than 30 is all they found. We talked about the buffalo almost becoming extinct. We were just literally months away from not, never having a longhorn. But they took them up to uh, our uh, territory in Oklahoma and left them alone. Remember, man had nothing to do with them, so they did better off without man, left them alone. They started multiplying on their own, and now we have thousands. J. Frank Doby once described longhorns as tall, bony, grotesquely narrow-hipped creatures that could walk the roughest ground, fight off the fiercest band of wolves, and endure punishment as few beasts on earth have ever shown themselves capable. Today, though, they're prized status symbols, with some weighing in excess of 2,000 pounds, and are more for show than anything else. For this, it bears mentioning that the herd steers look pretty different than the ones that used to roam the plains. In some ways, Maybe one could make the case that this is in itself metaphoric of how Western mythology has grown in romance and scope. But the beauty and majesty these animals possess is undeniable. And for that, I'm honestly pretty content to stand back and enjoy this display. It's also not hard to see why they draw over 800,000 spectators each year, which is something that continuously amazes Ed. About. I guess it's been 10 months now. Uh, I went to Israel and Egypt. Believe it or not, in both places, I ran into someone that visited over here and they said, oh, I remember you. You're the guy that stands outside and announced the cattle drive, you know? So uh, I guess it's a small world after all, right? But despite this influx, I think the Stockyards has somehow avoided becoming like Disney's Frontierland. When I ask Ed why he thinks this balance has been maintained, he stresses that the people around here recognize that preservation goes far beyond aesthetics and are committed to making the area's past a living, breathing encounter, which Tyler seems to state the herd perfectly embodies. That's, that's the way I've always viewed it, at least, was whenever I saw it from the outside. Whenever before I worked here, I viewed it as a preservation of history, kind of like a art museum preserves history. This is kind of our own version of art. This is our 
this is the this is like a live reenactment of art to me and so that's the way that I see the Fort Worth hurt is the it's a reenactment of history in the making in his book God Save Texas the Pulitzer Prize winner Lawrence Wright breaks down culture into three distinct categories the first level provides what you might call a bedrock or nativist foundation in Texas think pickup trucks and all we've come to stereotype. Level two is cosmopolitan overlay, which happens when people begin to sample foreign influences and Shakespeare, Puccini, and foie gras infiltrate cities. Then level three arrives when having absorbed the sophistication of level two, a culture returns to its origins to renew itself with, as Wright says, knowledge, self-confidence, and occasional forgiveness. All of this is on display around here. You can guzzle beer at the White Elephant Saloon or sip wine and nibble off a charcuterie board in Mule Alley. But while I can't speak for Mr. Wright, I think the Stockyards is, in many ways, an embodiment of Level 3. You can taste this in the rattlesnake and rabbit sausage at Chef Tim Love's Lonesome Dove Bistro. You can hear it in the music of the Cowtown Opry and Devin Dawson's Yodel. It's in the artistry of the boots sold at M.L. Letty's. And, of course, the side of Tyler and his fellow drovers guiding the Longhorns from atop their horses. I'd planned on hitting the road first thing Tuesday morning. But when the time came, I couldn't bring myself to leave. I had to catch the herd one last time. Naturally, I worried about beating the traffic on 35. But seeing the cows marching down exchange, I smiled knowing I made the right call. Then, turned to Ed before parting ways. You never get sick of it, huh? Never. Like I said, it just gives you a sensation, doesn't it? Like, never, never get tired of it. Thanks to Ed Brown for showing me around, Cowboy Tyler Peterson for taking the time out of his schedule to speak with me, and the good folks in Fort Worth who helped facilitate my meeting with these fine men. To plan your visit and for info on the herd, tours, and countless activities one can experience in this iconic destination, visit fortworthstockyards.com. Also, thanks to Devin Dawson and her pal Jesse Robertson for blessing me with their private concert. I'm including links to their site in the show notes, as well as the Cowtown Opry, which is a must-to experience should you find yourself in Fort Worth on a Sunday. Also, whether you're new here or have been with me since the beginning of this crazy journey, I must thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening. So you know, today's episode marks the conclusion of Vanishing Postcard's first season, but I promise you this should not be cause for sadness. Please stay subscribed, follow the show on your favorite podcast app, and keep sharing with your friends because we will be releasing a new season next year that I'm incredibly excited about, and we'll likely have a few bonus pieces and updates to keep you company in between now and then. I'll also be teasing news periodically on Instagram, so be sure to find us there or check out vanishingpostcards.com where I'm always happy to hear from you. And believe me, you'll never know how much your kind words fuel me. So thanks again. Please know that I'm wishing you well and hope you join us next season for more Vanishing Postcards.